with you, uh, why don't you turn to Ephesians chapter 4. Uh, if you don't have a Bible with you, that's totally fine. If you pop your hands up, uh, one of our stewards will happily bring you one. We're going to read from verse 11 tonight, just a few verses. Um, we're in a series exploring the elements of disciple making. And tonight we're on the fourth question, which is the who question. Who makes disciples? So uh, if a disciple is, as we've already said earlier in our series, is a forgiven sinner devoted to becoming like Jesus through learning and keeping the teachings of Jesus, then whose job is it to make that happen? Whose job is it to come alongside people and help them unlearn things and then help them learn new things? Uh, who does the teaching? Uh, who sets the example? Who calls for devotion? Who rebukes disobedience? Well, in 13 years of pastoral ministry, I've heard a number of responses to those questions. Uh, like Mike, for example, who said, well, isn't this what we pay you ministers for, making disciples? I pay you so I don't have to do it. I'm a stakeholder in the work, but a spectator in the stadium, not a player on the pitch. Yeah, boo to Mike. Simon's response was different. He said, isn't this what you were trained to do, though? So this is different from Mike. Church members don't really have the kind of level of training that others have. So what if we did something wrong? I mean, you don't let an anesthetist perform the surgery. That's not what they're trained to do. Surely, based on training, this is the responsibility of a specialized few. Or what about Ali, who said, well, I am just not gifted in that way, you know, in evangelism or in anything that really involves speaking to other people about what the Bible says. My gifting lies way more in areas of service. What do you think about those three? In answer to the question, who makes disciples? Well, Mike's really just thinking about himself. Simon thinks that the more training you have, the more responsible you are for it. And Ali's just pushed this biblical idea of gifting way too far. He's compartmentalized his area of service to the exclusion of something that is required of all. That is, disciple making. Can I ask, do you see yourself in any of these people? Have you heard these opinions in your own minds, even if they've not made it out verbally? Well, what does the Bible say to guys like this and to people like us? How does it help us answer this question? How, uh, who makes disciples? Well, let's uh, pray first and then we'll uh, read from Ephesians 4. Father, we pray you'd help us to learn what you would teach us tonight and devote ourselves to keeping it in the days ahead. Uh, we need your spirit to help us in both counts in Jesus' name. Amen. So Ephesians 4, 11 to 16. Actually, let me read from verse 7 just to give us some context. So to each one of us, grace has been given as Christ apportioned it. This is why it says, when he ascended on high, he took many captives and gave gifts to his people. So what does he ascended mean except that he also descended to the lower earthly regions? He who descended is the very one who ascended higher than all the heavens in order to fill the whole universe. 
So Christ himself gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the pastors and teachers to equip his people for works of service so that the body of Christ may be built up until we all reach unity in the faith and in the knowledge of the Son of God and become mature, attaining to the whole measure of the fullness of Christ. Then we will no longer be infants tossed back and forth by the waves and blown here and there by every wind of teaching and by their, the cunning and craftiness of people in their deceitful scheming. Instead, speaking the truth in love, we will grow up to become in every respect the mature body of him who is the head, that is Christ. From him the whole body, joined and held together by every supporting ligament, grows and builds itself up in love as each part does its work. Amen. This is God's words. Well, if you look in your sermon guide, you'll see we have two points tonight that really form the answer to the question, uh, who makes disciples? Uh, in answer to the first part, uh, the first part of the answer to the question, who makes disciples, is number one, pastors. Pastors without distraction. That might seem a bit of a surprise based on my introduction, but stick with me. And by the way, when I talk about pastors here, I'm also talking about elders. Uh, the words are really synonymous in the original language. So your pastors aren't just Paul, uh, Andy, and me, but Andy and Tim and Angus and Colin and Bruce, David, Adam, Barry, and Cito. It's all of us together. Now, what we see here in this passage is that God leaves responsibility for making disciples at the feet of elders or pastors. If you scan Ephesians 4 quickly, uh, we can summarize what it says. Verses 7 and 8 are really interesting. They're just like, it's pictured, it pictures Christ at the, the head of some kind of victory parade. He's defeated Satan, sin, and death by his own death and resurrection, and he has freed those who were captive to those enemies. And if you notice very carefully, what is he pictured doing as he carries on this procession? He's, he's doing what the ancient kings used to do after a victory of some kind. They're, he's dispensing gifts, throwing out gifts to everybody else so that everybody can share in the victory and in the joy. Now, what are the gifts that he's throwing out as a result of his redeeming work? Word gifts. They are speaking gifts. Gifts that bring good news to people and gifts that nurture people with that same good news. So the apostles and prophets are mentioned first. They are God's gift to us. They are the ones to whom the message was authoritatively given. Earlier in Ephesians, in chapter 2, verse 20, Paul calls them the foundation of the truth. That's how important they are. The next folks that are mentioned are the evangelists and pastors and teachers. Pastor, teacher is probably one word in there, actually. They're the ones who are mentioned next. They are also God's gift to his church, Christ's gift to the church. Evangelists, people especially gifted with bringing the good news to people who don't know Jesus, they are God's gift. Pastor teachers, men especially gifted with bringing the good news to bear in the lives of those who already know Jesus mostly, that's the elders, God's gift to his church, and their work of disciple making. Given that they're in this category of word gifts, speaking gifts, 
helps us to understand that disciple-making is what they do, and disciple-making is fundamentally word-based. It's a speaking thing. So the question is then, how does that actually happen in Charlotte Chapel? How should that happen in a church, a healthy local church? Um, Well, here's how they do it. Uh, Here's how elders do it. By their teaching, training, and example, elders make disciples. So by their teaching, training, and example, elders make disciples. Uh, By their teaching, first of all, let's zero in on that for a few seconds. They do this in two ways. There's a very obvious way that they do it. They actually teach you the Bible. So when they, and it doesn't have to be on a formal occasion where they're sitting down and leading a Bible study. It could be a word that you chat to them about, something you chat to them about over a topic for a couple of minutes after a service. They don't even have to open the word of God to you, but they might speak the word of God into your life with some kind of counsel or advice, some kind of encouragement. So they teach us in that way. They also teach us in some of those more formal ways. They do it when they come and visit us in our homes. But another way they do it is by enforcing what you might want to call an expository pulpit. Actually, you probably not want to call it that because that's the clunkiest thing I could have said tonight. Um, Basically by ensuring that the word of God is faithfully opened and faithfully taught. There, that sounded much better, didn't it? Okay, I thought it did. Anyway, um, so where the Bible is opened and preached faithfully, not leaned on to kind of, this is what I think it should say, and not springboarded from so that you're hardly even looking at the passage and just moving on to talk about something else, but preached. Now, by insisting on and monitoring a pulpit, a preaching ministry like this, I want us to understand that the elders are actually discipling us. Ensuring that the Sunday sermons are basically the tuning fork for the church. The Sunday sermons are like classroom for the whole church and the Sunday sermons being the firewall that guard against all the things that endanger the church. And one of the reasons why we insist so much on teaching the Bible as we do is that we believe it produces something in the church. Expository preaching, where the word of God is opened up, the meaning of the passages, the meaning of the sermon. The reason why we think that makes such a difference is because it produces expository leaders, learners, and evangelists all at the same time. Leaders who equip Other disciples, Christ learners to make more disciples. Learners themselves who live and breathe the word of God and speak it to each other also. And expository evangelists, people who speak God's word to God's world and love doing so. In short, a preaching ministry ought to produce as many preachers as listen. A whole raft of disciple makers. Now the elders not only disciple us by their own preaching, but also through training and example as well. I'm not going to say much about that because we talked a bit about that last time. But what should this look like for us? How does this apply in the life of our church family? Well, we need to apply it first of all to the elders who are here, of course. 
I put pastors, stroke elders, without distraction up there because it is, it is really quite easy to be distracted from this main work of disciple making in eldership, to take our eyes off the main thing. You see, we're not only responsible for ensuring a disciple-making pulpit, but a disciple-making church, which means that we need to, as elders, as leaders in this church, maintain a very, very clear focus. How do we do that? Well, quite simply, we've already worked through it, because effectively what we're doing is making disciples. And how are disciples made? We looked at that last time, through the four Ps, the persevering proclamation of the Word of God by us, the people of God, in prayerful dependence on the Spirit of God. That's how we do it. Now, I think we can also apply this uh, to some men in our church. The church needs way more men stepping up to this crucial disciple-making role. Um, If we don't have enough elders, then a vital cog in the whole mechanics of disciple-making in a local church is missing. And I wonder if there are some of you here tonight, men, who could be serving in this particular respect, but aren't. Or maybe in the future could be pursuing this area of service, but aren't really sure what to do next. I think there are various things that can easily get in the way of us doing things like this, pursuing eldership, desiring the office, and moving towards it. You can have bad theology in the sense that you might not really have grasped what we looked at in week one. So what actually is the place of the local church in God's eternal plan of bringing those who are lost and in darkness into the kingdom of his son and to be gathered in the future around that white hot throne in worship of the Lord Jesus forever and ever and ever. We sometimes play down what church is. Sometimes it feels messy and it can be a don't let that be a distraction. Let the word of God inform your view of the church. Sometimes it's not down to bad theology though. It can be just down to bad indifference. We maybe just assume someone else will do it. Maybe a bad attitude. Maybe we can be quite critical and negative about current leaders or maybe not willing to step up. Maybe we can be distracted by other things as well. We're too involved in other things, overcommitted in ways that prevent us serving in this crucial way. I think this is an important thing for us to reflect on, even as a church family, and to fuel our prayers. Because what you really see in Ephesians 4, verses 11 and 12, is that God will make disciples through godly elders who disciple others. This is one of our most pressing needs. So pray about that. So the first part of the answer to the question, who makes disciples, is the answer, well, pastors, elders, to do so without distraction, to be really focused on it. So does that mean that Mike, the first guy that I mentioned, was actually right? Because he said, well, it's all the paid guys. It's the elders who make disciples. Well, no, of course not. I've already booed him. Ephesians 4 puts elders really at the heart of disciple-making and presses on them the importance of doing it themselves, but not to the exclusion of other people, we have to understand, but for their inclusion, for the inclusion of everybody else. So who makes disciples? Not just pastors and elders without distraction, but to everyone without exception. 
And here's where we see in Ephesians 4 again that God lays the responsibility for making disciples at the feet, not just of pastors and elders, but at the feet of all believers. If you go back to Ephesians 4, we stopped halfway through the sentence. Uh, We saw in verse 11, Christ himself gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the pastors and teachers. We just stopped there. But it goes on to say, to equip his people for works of service so that the body of Christ may be built up until we all reach unity in the faith and the knowledge of the Son of God and become mature, attaining to the whole measure of the fullness of Christ. So why does Christ give this gift of pastor, teacher, elders to the church? To equip God's people. To put tools and resources and teaching in the hands of everyone so that everyone can do the work. Makes perfect sense. Now what does the speaking of these evangelists and pastors produce? More speakers. More people who are opening up their mouths and talking about Jesus. Speakers of truth and no one is exempt. Even if you look down at 15, what, what are some, verse 15, what are some of the results here? Speaking the truth in love. We will grow to become in every respect the mature body of him who is the head, that is Christ. You see in verse 15, it is all believers who are speaking the word of God. Believers who are speaking the word of God to each other for their building up. You see it again and again. It happens another twice later on in Ephesians 4. We don't have time to go into those references. So here's what all of God's people do. People who have believed the gospel for themselves, what do they do with it? Well, they proclaim it too. And they're like satellites. What they receive, they transmit. It's as simple as that. They speak the word of God to each other. What does that look like? Well, the answer is the same as it was for pastors and elders. The answer is the same as it was the last time we met, the four Ps. They perseveringly proclaim the word of God as the people of God in prayerful dependence on the spirit of God. We're not asked to do anything newfangled. We're not asked to do or invited to do anything that's considerably spectacular that you need an immense amount of training for. We're being asked to speak. And most of us are quite good at doing that. Now, Colin Marshall and Tony Payne in The Vine Project, the book that this series is based on, say this. There is ample evidence that speaking the word of God to others for their salvation or or to others for their edification is an expected and necessary component of the normal Christian life. Okay, listen to that again. There's ample evidence that speaking the word of God to others for their salvation or for their edification is an expected and necessary component of the normal Christian life. All God's believers must do this. So Mike is wrong. He's not a spectator in a stadium. What is he? He's a player on the pitch with everybody else. And Simon is wrong. He assumes that he needs to be an elite disciple maker to make disciples. He doesn't. He just needs to share what he's been taught. 
and he downplays what he already knows. And Ali is wrong. He assumes he can exclude himself by claiming gifting and expertise in another area, but Ephesians 4 says, no, 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 no. This is everyone's responsibility. This is everyone's job. Now, I don't want you to go out and think, okay, so we've all to become preachers. Uh, not proclaiming. I, I don't want you thinking we need to become proclaimers in the sense that I'm doing just now. But we all need to be those, as we looked at a couple of weeks ago, those who re-speak God's word. Just to speak to others what God himself has spoken to us. And I mentioned as well, and I'm not going to go into this in great detail just now, but it can take different forms, which takes a bit of the heat out of it for us as well, remember. For example, some people are just really good at going up to strangers and striking up conversations, whether it's in the church or people outside the church, and are quite content to just kind of, whoop, how is Jesus making a difference in your life? You know, they go right for the, uh, for the Christian jugular. They're very good at that, and I'm absolutely delighted to know people like that. Oh, I just got a sudden urge to point at people, but I better not do that. Some others have the patience to sit down and over a long period of time be really, really good at listening to people. Kind of absorbing everything that that person is saying, but, and very, very carefully weighing up in their heads what counsel they're going to give before they then speak. And I'm so delighted to know many people in our church family who are like that. Others just have the skills and aptitude for helping groups of Christians grapple together with the Bible and teach it in that way, like our growth group leaders, our timeout leaders, our yak leaders. I'm so grateful for people like that. It, this teaching can take different forms, but it doesn't matter what form it takes in your own life as a believer in Jesus. Respeaking the word of God is what should happen when wherever Christians go, in whatever situations they find themselves in. Now, having said that, the Bible does point to two key locations where disciple-making must be a priority, the church and the home. So in the church, it is what we do when we gather. That's why we spend at least half an hour every service, except for church of prayer, of course, opening up a text of the Bible and walking through it, preaching a message based on it, as we have been in our morning series. We do this not just, we, we share and re-speak this word to each other, not from pulpit to pew, but from pew to pew as well, if you like, or chair to chair, pew to pew upstairs. Um, we speak the word of God to each other. And not just in large gatherings as a church like we are here, but in smaller gatherings too. But we also re-speak the word of God to each other in the home. The home is, if you read through the Bible, it's unmistakable. The home is a particularly important sphere in which Christian word ministry can and should flourish. If you thought about how many times the Bible talks about what it should look like for the word of God to be spoken between husbands and wives, parents and kids, grandparents and kids even, between hosts and guests in the form of hospitality, these are all relationships and opportunities through which we can re-speak the word of God to each other. This is how we fulfill this responsibility to make disciples. Now in the Vine Project, Marshall and Payne make a strong claim at this point. See if you agree or disagree with this. 
although there may be many speaking, uh, forms of uh, speaking ministry happening in various ways, they would say, it is fair to say that the majority of people in our churches don't see this as a normal part of their lives to be prayerfully speaking the word of God to someone else for their growth. What do you think of that? It's fair to say that the majority of people in our churches don't see this, this re-speaking the word of God to each other, as a normal part of their lives, prayerfully speaking the word of God to someone else for their growth. Would that be true of our church? Or a section of our church? Would that be true of you as a Christian? Let me ask these questions. Diagnostic questions, perhaps. In your small group, when was the last time you confessed a sin or asked someone to pray for something really important in your life? The kind of thing that took probably a little bit of vulnerability to share. When was the last time you invited someone to speak into your life for your growth? Whether it's formatively in an encouraging way or correctively. How many times have we left someone to be ignorant of a sin that they quite clearly don't see in themselves and how does that compare with the number of times when we have? Is there a discrepancy between the two? As a church, how are we spreading our resources, people power, even money? Would an analysis of our ministries indicate that making disciples based on the way we've defined it in this series really is as much of a priority to us? And when was the last time we talked about God or the gospel or our faith to someone who doesn't know Jesus? Marshall and Payne say it might be worth checking because what they've often found in their research among thousands of churches really is that among Christians and in local churches, the problem tends not to be theoretical, but practical. In other words, we know it. But somehow, oftentimes, there's a gap between what we know the Bible says and what we actually do. I wouldn't say that that's just a practical problem. I would say that's a sin problem. Because the other word for this is disobedience. Now, there can be very many reasons for that. And I count myself in that. But it's worth thinking this over reflecting on it that we might carefully align ourselves with what we ought to be doing and do it. Everything depends on this. Everything that matters in life really depends on this, doesn't it? Disciple making is our responsibility. Who makes disciples? Look around. We do. Now, the Bible tells us this, but so often, what do we find in this? And I count myself in this. The Bible tells me so, but my heart says, no, no, this is tricky. This is hard. Making that jump from theory to practice 
It actually involves interacting with people. There are various things get in the way. I think there are many reasons, tons of reasons, even in this room, I reckon, that we could throw into the mix for why that doesn't happen. But I want to focus just on two, motivation and confidence. Motivation, where my heart is the problem. A lack of motivation or love has to be the main reason we don't speak the word of God to more people around us. Lack of love for God, lack of love for the lost, Ultimately, self-love is what's at the heart of it, and self-love is a killer. How do we deal with it? Can loveless hearts be transformed? Absolutely. It's what the gospel is for, but how does it happen? We might not like the answer. It is by perseveringly proclaiming the word of God as the people of God to each other in prayerful dependence on the Spirit of God. Confidence can be the other issue where my fear is the problem. I mean, and this is true, isn't it? We do get scared at this for various reasons. I mean, I was at a wedding recently and I sat next to a guy who, uh, who isn't a Christian and uh, we got talking, and literally within about 60 seconds, he asked me the question that I, forgive me, I wrongly dread, uh, what do you do? And uh, in that moment, right, I'm being very honest with you, in that moment, there are quite a few fears rush on me. He's going to think I'm weird. He could actually get annoyed. This is someone else's wedding. There shouldn't be a scene at a wedding. Uh, he might ask a question that I find hard to answer, or he might want to talk all night, and actually, these shoes are really killing me. I just really quite enjoy sitting, talking to people I know, and enjoying some food. Okay? Yeah, I know, it was really terrible of me, and I have repented. So, um, here's what I said to him. Having those fears rush on me, I said, so he said, what do you do? And I said, I'm a minister. I teach people the Bible. And I show them why believing in Jesus' death and resurrection is the best news they can hear and the only thing that they need in life. And my heart just thumped, boom. Felt like it was going to come right out of my chest. Oh, okay, he said. Which was fine, which is what most people say because they don't really know what to say when you talk about the death and resurrection of Jesus. But the, the point of it was just to say, do you know what? Now, actually, let's go back. Let's analyze what's going on in that situation because I, I was nervous and I was anxious in that particular situation. And to be fair, the consequences of that situation are, are minimal, really, let's face it. For others, speaking the truth in a situation where you're trying to tell the gospel to someone who doesn't believe the gospel is much more costly. It can lead to broken relationships, terrible circumstances within relationships, even persecution, etc. I know that. But here's what really helped me as I analyzed that and thought through why I felt the way I felt and why I did what I did. What was it that gave me the confidence to say something positive about Jesus? What was it that made me less fearful in that instance? I think it was two things. One, it was faith. It was taking God at his word. It was believing that 
all the things I've read, and I know for sure that God has said he's the one who's at work through his Holy Spirit in this guy's life and in the world to convict the world of sin in relation to sin, righteousness, and judgment. He's the one. John 16, I've preached on that passage. So the first thing was faith. Am I going to take God at his word? And I chose yes. Even though I was still scared when I said it, I said yes. The second thing that helped me to say it was this series. Because doing this series has really helped me to zero in on simplifying things, to teach it to you. And it's actually helped me share the gospel with more people. And to speak to Christians who already believe the gospel for their building up as well. And do you know what really helped was this thing that we were talking about a couple of weeks ago where I'm trying to understand that all I'm trying to do in that particular moment is help that guy as he asks me a question take one step to the right based on our diagram. Take one step closer to a truer, sharper understanding of who Jesus is and what he's done. So I actually didn't even need to go into the, the stuff that I said in that first statement. In fact, the conversation went on for about an hour and a half, which was awesome. But just clarifying in my head, I'm going to take God at his word and I'm just going to see what he might do in and through me as I try and help this guy take one step to the right. Doesn't that simplify things for us? Sometimes the pressure's on to be like, right, I'm going to, I'm going to convert this guy. And it's just not what, by God's grace, he brings about miraculous changes in people's minds. But most statistics would say it takes between six and three years for some, six months and three years for someone to grasp the gospel and believe it for themselves. Now, anything that I was able to do in that situation is not attributed to my courage or strength of faith. Actually, it's purely down to the Holy Spirit. But I just give it as an example because I believe it might help address the confidence issue, the fear issue. Take God at his word, brothers and sisters. He keeps his promises. He's never let us down with one of them. And try to get into our minds the importance of just helping people take one step to the right. One step closer to believing in Jesus. Or if we are Christians, one step closer to maturity in Jesus. So that's the answer, really, based on those two main points. And here's the summary for you. If we're going to answer the question, who makes disciples? The answer is, by their preaching, training, and example, pastors and elders equip every Christian to be a Christ learner who helps others learn Christ. That's a long-winded way of saying it's all of us. It's all of us. We're going to take a few minutes to respond like we have done in previous weeks. And there are going to be five things on screen. Um, maybe you're like Mike, Simon, or Ali, uh, wrongly excusing yourself from disciple-making. 
maybe in this response time of a couple of minutes, you can confess that and ask God to help you see that everyone without exception is a disciple maker. Uh, maybe you're an elder here. Why not read Ephesians 4, 11 to 16 to reflect on your role in the life of the church and then turn it into a prayer? Uh, why not spend time praying for more committed men in the church to confess bad theology and difference or attitudes that prevent them from making disciples or pursuing uh, a role in leadership? Uh, why not study the diagram on the sheet again and envision disciple making in terms of helping each person take a step to the right towards Jesus? Ask God to help you with this. And if you're here tonight and you're not a Christian, what, what do you think about what's been said? What do you agree with? What do you disagree with? Maybe in this time you want to think through one or two questions you might ask a Christian friend based on what's been said tonight. Uh, so let's in the quietness uh, go into this response time and I'll bring our time to a close in a couple of minutes time.